Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Yaroslav Trofimov, author of Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence, published today by Penguin. Since February 2022, a string of books have been published about the war in Ukraine, but for the most part, these have been histories and political studies. Only now are the first drafts of history coming from war reporters. Christopher Miller and Andrew Harding published last summer, and they will be followed later this month by Simon Schuster's book on Zelensky's war. But first comes Yaroslav Trofimov's account of the first year of the full-scale invasion, a book combining history, frontline reporting, and understandable emotion. Being a country at war, he writes, one is rarely distressed by the casualties of the invading army. But in the forest outside Lehman, these freshly dead Russian men with their civilian backpacks containing their meager possessions with their sleeping bags and pouches of fever and pain medication were no longer anonymous and generic invaders. I looked at their faces and felt anger. Yaroslav Trofimov is a Kiev-born journalist. He joined the Wall Street Journal in 1999, reporting from Rome, Singapore, Pakistan, Dubai and Afghanistan, where he covered the Taliban's takeover in 2021. Since January 22, a month before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, he's been working out of Ukraine and is now the journal's chief foreign affairs correspondent. Our Enemies Will Vanish is his third book. Yaroslav, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be on the show. I imagine, uh, I've never been one, but I imagine being uh, an active uh, reporter in a, in a war zone is a full-time and pretty uncomfortable job. How did you make time to write the book? Well, you know, it's, it kind of comes together because... Uh, a large part of the reporting was uh, also done when I was reporting uh, for the newspaper. Uh, you see so many things, and at least so much of that fits into you know the narrative of the day. And yet, if you do it over time, and you keep meeting the same people, the same characters, and see the change in their circumstances, you have all this stuff in your notebooks and now in your phone. Uh, that at the end of the day, after a year, makes up a big part of the book. And you know, thanks to technology today, you know, we tape every interview on your on our iPhones or Samsungs, and and suddenly you have this record that you can listen to you know, a year later, and then maybe hear some things that you didn't quite capture at the time uh, because of all the other things that were happening. And so you got to Ukraine a month before the attack on, on Kyiv. I mean, did you volunteer for this? Because you came from Afghanistan, clearly, when everybody was, was thrown out. Did, did you volunteer to go back to Ukraine after that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I was in Afghanistan uh, on the day when Kabul fell, when, you know, sort of watched the Taliban flood into the city just hours after uh, the president, Ashraf Ghani, escaped. And then I came back to Afghanistan a couple of weeks later, and I, I actually crisscrossed the country under the Taliban rule all the way until the year of 2021. And then after uh, a few weeks of battling COVID, I volunteered to go to Ukraine uh, just because it was clear at the time that Ukraine will be invaded and you know, the, you know, the war seemed imminent. And as someone who was born in Ukraine, who grew up there as a child and who speaks the languages, it seemed to me that my place was there, and I couldn't just not cover it. Yeah, and you say you say early on in the book that it feels weird wandering around your one of your hometowns wearing uh, Kevlar and, and a helmet. You know, having been in previous war zones before. Yeah, it was almost uh, as an insult. Uh, I had this feeling of how dare they? This is not a war zone. It's not supposed to be a war zone. Obviously, people in every war zone think this, uh, and I have seen how other peaceful cities shattered. Uh, but still, you know, there was this element of personal insult 
uh, to this, you know, yeah, this was the hospital where I was taken as a kid to fix my eyes, and now it's it's overflowing with the wounded. And you know, this is a you know botanical garden when I had my first kiss as a teenager, and suddenly you know there are shelters around it, and there's air raid sirens, and the streets are empty. So, <clears throat> but so in that way, it was much harder than covering other wars, and I've covered pretty much every major conflict in the past couple of, couple of decades. But on the other hand, it was easier than, say, the war in Afghanistan or the war in Iraq or, or the wars in Israel and, and, and the Palestinians because of the moral clarity of this one. You know, every other one had a lot of shades of gray and none of the sides was perfect, whereas uh, in Ukraine, I think it was probably the least ambiguity of any major conflict uh, since World War II. And you had a very clear aggressor in Russia invading for no reason at all, trying to subjugate Ukraine and wipe out the Ukrainian culture, language, nationhood. Uh, and Ukraine had not anything to provoke it. So in that way, I mean, if I had been from a place with, with the moral clarity of that level, it was absolutely much harder. You say you went back in full anticipation that a war was coming, but you make it clear fairly early in the book that, along with a lot of Ukrainians, you thought that the invasion would, would come out of Donbass, that they tried to take more of Donbass, and, and you were a little surprised by the scale of the, the full-scale invasion. You did, however, learn on the night before the invasion began from an unusual source. Can you explain the scene behind that? Yeah, so the day before the invasion, uh, I went to see the former president, Petro Poroshenko, who was the predecessor of President Zelensky, and it was his political rival and enemy. Uh, and the interview was supposed to happen days later, but it was moved. Uh, they called me, told me, come. So I came and I had this interview. It was all very polite, and, and Poroshenko told me about how unity is important in Ukrainian history. But then at the end of it, uh, he... As we just, you know, saying our farewells, he leaned towards me and said, by the way, the war will be tomorrow morning and dawn. So if you want to leave, now is your time to go to the airport. And a lot of people were leaving that night. Uh, I obviously decided to stay because I was there for that. And, and he was right, you know, by, uh, by 5 a.m., massive Russian missile barrages began at Kiev and other cities. The Russian tank formations crossed the border. Uh, and they headed straight for Kiev. They headed straight for the capital, which was a surprise to many. Kiev wasn't really well defended. It was one brigade of the Ukrainian army in the entire Kiev region, uh, and most of the fighting force was in the Donbass. You do write, though, about the, the collapse of the Ukrainian resistance to the southern invasion that came out of Crimea, and this was very shocking, or it's in retrospect, it seems very shocking. Was it as shocking to you from what you knew about how the intelligence services was riddled with Russian spies, or were you as surprised as the rest of us? Well, nobody quite knew, right? I mean, obviously, Russia had spent 30-plus years infiltrating the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military, uh, the Ukrainian intelligence services uh, with its agents. The network was huge, and nobody knew whom to trust. Trust was an issue who was on which, on which side. And I remember I was talking to uh, the Ukrainian National Security Advisor, uh, Danilov, uh, just before uh, the war. And he said, when well, we worked hard to eliminate spy networks, but we just don't know. And obviously, a lot of people had taken Russian money, and Russia was banking on the fact that pretty much everyone who matters, senior military commanders, governors, mayors, and intelligence officials will switch sides 
uh, when the time comes. And uh, there wouldn't be much for resistance to the predictions in Moscow that the Ukrainian army will switch sides en masse. And uh, everyone was expecting in Moscow and in Western capitals that Kyiv would fall uh, in three days or a week. And this did happen in the South. But that was an exception not true. In the South, in Kherson particularly, uh, the local government basically melted away. No one put up much resistance. The intelligence service turned out to be riddled with Russian agents all the way to the top. And that's how Russia was able to make this extremely quick advance in the South, uh, which it still holds until now, you know, in the Zaporizhia and Kherson regions. But that didn't turn out to be the case in many other areas, not in Kharkiv, uh, not in uh, places like Kribiri, definitely not in the north. And it's interesting that wherever a local official in his first days showed initiative, very simple initiative, just sending a couple of bulldozers or municipal buses to you know block a road, put them up in the airfield, uh, maybe block a bridge, the Russian army stopped because even minor resistance would make them stop at the time. And, and that's how a lot of the front lines initially, initially were formed. And... <clears throat> In the south, you know, as once the Russians crossed the boundary of the Kherson region, suddenly every little mayor and, 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 and town hand was doing this and putting up its resistance and stopping the Russians. And the, the most striking of those uh, seems to have been uh, Voznesensk, and then obviously um, the, the the protest coming from the uh, the governor of uh, Mikolaev. You you went to Voznesensk very soon after the battle. Yeah, Voznesensk was a strategic town because. It was probably the northernmost town that the Russians had reached coming from the south from Crimea. And after Voznesensk was the prize, the South Ukraine uh, nuclear power plant, you know, one of the four operational power plants in Ukraine. And and beyond that was the soft underbelly of central Ukraine. So if the Russians had come to Voznesensk, they would have gone straight towards uh, Dnipro and Kiev or turned left and basically flanked and entered Odessa uh, from the back where there wasn't much resistance, and uh, basically it would have been a catastrophe. And so when the Russians reached there, uh, the mayor of the, of the city showed this initiative. He basically agreed with local uh, businessmen, with local uh, entrepreneurs to use all the uh, heavy machinery that had bulldozers, structures, you know, cranes, <clears throat> to uh, create obstacles in the road that would channel the Russian columns into areas where it would be more easily destroyed, and obviously, you know, the army arrived just in time to blow up a bridge, the strategic bridge that, that the Russians couldn't cross. And and that was really, you know, I arrived there when the Russian vehicles were still smoldering and the, the, the fields were still, still strewn with bodies of Russian soldiers. Uh, that was in the, in the first week of uh, April uh, 2022. It was really the first major defeat of the Russian military battalion tactical group, maybe two, were routed there by local civilians uh, and by the military that was working with them. You know, I spoke to people who were, as they saw the Russians come in, were just hiding in the bushes right next to Russian artillery positions, Russian tanks, and using social media apps to just send GPS coordinates and message to the artillery units uh, you know, miles away you know, to obliterate those positions. Obviously, the Battle of Kiev the, and the battle at uh, Hostomel Airport were absolutely critical to the to the survival of Ukraine. Do you think Voznesensk was the turning point in the south? Yeah, well, Voznesensk uh, basically 
the, the Russian defeat in Voznesensk meant that the Russians had to retreat far, far away. So that saved uh, not just central Ukraine, not just uh, you know one of Ukraine's three remaining nuclear power plants because the Russians did occupy the fourth one, Zaporizhia, but it also uh, prevented the fall of Mykolaiv and saved Odessa. So basically Ukraine still has a coastline, still has ports because of that battle of Vesninsansk where the Russians were stopped. You mentioned the importance of some of the local officials standing up. And you, you have some very striking examples of this. Pe- people who the Russians kind of assumed were going to be on their side. So, for example, the I think it was the mayor of Kharkiv, but certainly the mayor of uh, Krivilye, which is the, the hometown of, of Zelensky. Can you tell us the story of, of, of meeting these local, local officials and whether there was any hesitation in their standing up? Well, there certainly wasn't any hesitation uh, in how they reacted uh, once the war began, uh, the mayor of Kriviri, who was known to be pretty pro-Russian culturally, you know, he used to be a member of the government of uh, President Yanukovych, who was ousted, the pro-Russian president who was ousted in 2014. And the same could be said about the mayor of Kharkiv, Terekhov. You know, he refuses to speak Ukrainian in public. And uh, he spent the previous uh, the years before the war in litigation with the government because he would resist uh, decrees and court judgments uh, on renaming streets that were named after Soviet generals and you know, like Marshal Zhukov of World War II. And Russia was thinking, banking, uh, Putin was banking on the fact that these people, because they speak Russian at home, because they have cultural affinity to Russia, would be their allies. But the opposite happened. I think what happened is that, as Terehov, the mayor of Kharkiv, told me, <coughs> You know, once when I met him in the subway, because that was the only safe place to be at the time, deep underground, the Ukraine, the Russian-speaking Ukrainians of the East, of the South, actually have become more fiercely opposed to Russia and to the Russian attempts of uh, Russian attempts to incorporate Ukraine because they have seen what it means. To them, the war was very much. Well, personally, their own homes were blown up, destroyed in Kharkiv. The northern part of Kharkiv was basically turned to rubble by non-incessant Russian shelling, and the northern part of Kharkiv was Europe's, one of Europe's largest residential areas, and it's just of high-rises, 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 they're all gone. And so uh, to these people, the war was a reality, and that has turned them against Russia for generations, whereas for many people in the traditionally, previously more nationalist parts of Ukraine in the West, they were far away from the front line. The war was something they mostly saw on TV with an occasional missile hitting here and there. And so <clears throat> that lived experience of dealing with the Russians really changed the mindset, not just of the mayors, but also of the population in these places. And also, also the same can be said about Donbass. And yet you, you do write about the people, you talk about the Zhduni, I think that's how you say it, the, the, the waiting ones. So people who live in, in, in Verticom's Russia world. Can you tell us more about them and, and about the nurse you met who felt that things had actually got worse since her uh, her town had been uh, liberated by the Ukrainians? Actually, so by now, this is a term that is used by both sides. The Russians are referring by, to Zduni in the Russian-occupied areas who are working with the Ukrainians and waiting for the Ukrainians to return. So, But uh, speaking about the Zduni, the Sokol Zduni and the waiting ones, in uh, areas that were at the time of Ukrainian control. So, well, first of all, there is a lot of people, especially in the old generation, that were getting all the information from watching Russian television and were very susceptible to the propaganda. 
And also then having grown up in the Soviet Union, the kind of still had nostalgia for the past, which in a lot of this poor towns, deindustrialized towns, was a time of relative prosperity. And then uh, you also have some people who are originally from Russia, have most of the family in Russia, and really see themselves as belonging to Russia. That's a minority, uh, you know, pretty small minority. Uh, but they are there. And when uh, the war came to these towns, like Lysychansk, Severodonetsk, Bakhmut, the vast majority of the population fled west, fled to Kiev, fled to Europe. And, and many of those who remained, not all, but many of those who remained, were there precisely because you know, they were expecting liberation. Liberation by, quote-unquote, by the Russians. And liberation came usually in the form of basically the cities being flattened. There's not much left of Bakhmut now, and nobody lives there. And not many people have remained, uh, or intact apartments have remained in Lysychansk and Severodonetsk. Uh, but that's that's the reality. That's the world that people live in. I think in the uh, nurse you mentioned is a different story. Uh, some cities fell to the Russians without a fight in the very beginning, like the city of Kupiansk, uh, which was the capital of the Russian administrative part of the Kharkiv region. And it was far away from the front lines. And so life there was kind of normal. You know, the Russians put some money into it. They started paying salaries to public servants, to hospital workers, and everything was sort of functioning. You know, they had electricity, they had, they didn't have banking services, but they did have running water, uh, and they didn't have war uh, for several months until the Ukrainian military recaptured Kupiansk in uh, September uh, 2022. And then it became a frontline town because the Russians are still not far away, just a few miles from Kupiansk, and they're still shelling it every day. And the city is in ruins. And so for some of the locals, including this nurse that I met, the real troubles started with the liberation by the Ukrainians. That's, again, that's not a majority viewpoint, but it does exist. What do you think the state of life in the occupied territories is now? I mean, how far back from the line of contact would there just be absolute destruction? And then in the parts of the occupied, of parts of occupied Donbass, not Crimea, that are not in that kind of state, you know, are these functioning economies? Is it just old sick people or, or communist nostalgics who live there? What, what is your estimate for, for what these so-called autonomous republics are like now? Well, let's, let's look at them separately. So you have the areas that were occupied since 2014. The city of Donetsk, the city of Luhansk, sort of areas east and south of that. And so uh, Luhansk is very far from the front line. It gets an occasional missile, but uh, it's reasonably peaceful. Uh, Donetsk is on the front line. You know, Ukrainian artillery is shelling the city quite regularly. Uh, things are a lot less calm there. Uh, but even before this latest round of fighting began, the boss cities emptied out. If you look at the population of the Russian occupied areas at the outbreak of the full-scale war, more than half, maybe even two-thirds of them, had left. Some to government-controlled parts of Ukraine, some to Europe, some to Russia. And they, but they left because there was nothing there. You know, those are sort of gray zones run by gangsters and men with guns. There were no real jobs except in some of the mines, but the mines were closing down. You, know, you couldn't use the credit cards there. You couldn't uh, use your data on your mobile phone necessarily. And so uh, they were already turning into economic wasteland 
where most of the people who stayed were either elderly or too sick or people had to care uh, for a sick relative or an elderly relative or uh, people linked with the Russian-created paramilitary structures, you know, the gangsters which actually ran the place. Now, if you look at the towns that were in cities that were conquered after that, so you have Mariupol, which is far from the front lines, but it was completely devastated during the month-long siege. It was the only place in Ukraine where Russia had unfettered use of air power. Uh, because the city was surrounded, the front line with the rest of the Ukrainian territory was far away, and they could just send wave after wave of bombers to just drop dumb bombs and flatten the city. We don't know how many people died there, 20,000, 70,000. Nobody knows because nobody counted, and there's still bodies in the rubble. So Mariupol is pretty much gone as a city. The Russians are rebuilding a few Potemkin village-like projects, but it's a dead city. Bakhmut is completely gone. It's not a single person who can live there. Other cities taken by the Russians, like Volnovaha, Lutyanska, Vedanyansk, are also pretty much destroyed because the way of the fighting, the way the fighting happened in Donbass was grinding and slow with month-long battles for, uh, for every city. Unlike what happened in the south, where in occupied areas in the south, places like Bradyansk, Melitopol, you know, there hasn't been much destruction because they were taken quickly and uh, without much resistance. What, one of the things that makes the book such an easy read is how you intersperse the history of the war and your underground reporting in places like Kiev, uh, Slovyansk, Bakhmut, Voznesensk, with your colleagues Stevo and Manu. Uh, can you tell us something about the team and the logistics behind your country trips? Who decides when, when and where to go? Well, I think, uh, you know... Uh, we decided things together, called it the Shura, like in Afghanistan, sort of a constant omitting of the elders. So we said, let's, meet, let's sit down with the coffee and have a Shura, what are we going to do? And what can we see? What is the best place to go to? We trade ideas. And, uh, you know, Manu has, uh, is a remarkable photographer, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, and he has covered lots of wars, like me around the world, but he also has been covering Ukraine since 2014. So he knows the country pretty well. And Steve, who is a, a veteran British uh, service member who's also fought in many wars, uh, had very pr- practical ideas about what is safe, what is not safe, and how to mitigate the risk. And his main priority has always been to enable us to do the reporting as opposed to Sort of find reasons not to do it. You know, no risk, no story is the approach. And so um, I speak Ukrainian and Russian and don't need a translator or interpreter. Made things much easier because we didn't have to risk the lives of local journalists when we came to the front lines. Uh, you know, the fewer men or women that are in the car, the better it is, uh, obviously, because you know, the, 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 the smaller is the chance of somebody going to get, going to get hurt. Uh, one of the places you went, I mean, right in the middle of the most intense fighting was was Bakhmut in August 22. You communicated with Yevgeny Prigozhin. It wasn't clear to me whether you'd ever actually spoken to him, but you communicated with him by uh, email or, or messenger. You seem to have concluded that, that his meat grinder tactics paid off and thousands of untrained Russian convicts were sacrificed for thousands of experienced Ukrainian soldiers and that this weakened Ukraine when the time came for the counteroffensive. 
Yeah, so I went to Bakhmut a number of times, uh, and the last time I uh, went there was uh, in February and March 2023, so just before it fell. And uh, as for, for Prigozhin, I mean, the way to communicate with him was to send him an email. Uh, and the, he would usually publish the entire email on his Telegram channel and then answer it. <clears throat> so it was a peculiar way of communication. On one level, yes. On one level, this has worked uh, because you know, some of Ukraine's best units, professional units, took very severe casualties in, in Bakhmut. But on they didn't. Because if you look at it now, what has happened in Bakhmut? The best formation of the Russian military, the only force that could actually advance and take cities was Wagner. Because Prigozhin had been hiring the best of the best in the Russian special forces and the Russian armed forces in general, paying them high salaries, training them. They had all the best equipment, they had the esprit de corps, they had you know, proper commanders, they had combat experience in places like uh, Syria and Libya. They were the only ones who could punch through Ukrainian defenses and take territory. And so the whole organization was wasted on Bakhmut. But Prigozhin's own count, some 30,000 uh, of his men died there. And after Bakhmut, Wagner was exhausted militarily. And then Prigozhin, that was one of the reasons why Prigozhin tried to launch this coup, uh, demanding the ouster of the commanders of the Russian army. And you know, obviously, as we know now, the putsch failed, and Prigozhin himself was eliminated a few months later. And Wagner has ceased to exist as the separate, credible fighting force, because not just Prigozhin was killed, but also codenamed Wagner himself, Mitri Utkin, who had created it. So as far as Ukraine is concerned now, there is nothing in the battlefield that approaches Wagner's ability to, to advance and to fight. So it's, you know, it's probably a wash, I would say. Yeah. I was very struck, though, by your interview with the guy who was the high mars commander mm-hmm. and uh, after he'd I th- he'd lost a leg and he he was warning his father not to come back from poland and the reason he gave was if you come back and you're military aged you'll be sent to bakhmut and and you'll die do you think it had that kind of negative imp- general negative impact on ukrainian morale as well well i mean i think casualties in general were high and they've had an impact on ukrainian morale and on russian morale and what has happened is that much of the professional armies on both sides have been killed or injured. And most of the people who wanted to fight on both sides uh, are, are now dead or injured. And so Ukraine has to rely on drafting hundreds of thousands of people who don't really want to go there. And obviously, the lower is uh, the motivation, the lower is the quality of these recruits in terms of like, physical training and uh, and skills, you know, the, the higher the odds of them dying. Because if you're an untrained soldier, you, know, you don't live that long. Uh, because of the inadequate military after 2014, a lot of this was filled by militia that were created by businessmen, political parties, even football ultras. Can you t- tell us about some of these groups, about maybe some of the uh, myths and misconceptions around them? Yeah, so if you remember what happened in 2014, in, in Crimea, the Russians took... The entire peninsula without <clears throat> firing a shot, basically. I mean, there was some skirmishes here and there, but the Ukrainian military didn't resist, apart from singing songs and waving flags. Uh, in Donbass, when the same scenario started to unfold, and the Ukrainian government sent the military, it realized they didn't have much of a military. 
you know, after all these years of corruption, mismanagement, and Russian penetration of the Ukrainian government under Yanukovych, and at the time, uh, under Yanukovych, the Ukrainian defense minister was a Russian citizen. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> there were only a few thousand combatory troops, and to get the moving, private businessmen had to pitch in and buy accumulators because uh, to buy batteries because you know the, the armored vehicles didn't have working batteries. And so the society filled the gap. You had all those tens of thousands of people who had just spent months uh, on Maidan, uh, camping out, battling with the police uh, as they pressed for new elections and uh, for, for really for turning away from Russia. So many of them uh, and many of the Ukrainians who were abroad at the time came back to fight in Donbass and created these units that were some of them came from, uh, as you said, uh, sort of the, the, the football hooligans. One of them, Azov, that is probably the best known one, uh, was initially uh, quite heavy on, on the far-right militants, including some new Nazis. And the reason why people flocked to many of these units was not because of this the ideology, especially with Azov, uh, but because they were the only ones actually fighting and kind of seeming to know what they were doing. Over time, after that, though, uh, these units either fizzled away or were incorporated into the formal structures of Ukrainian armed forces, Ukrainian National Guard. Azov became a regiment in the National Guards with a career military officer, the lieutenant colonel, running it. And so um, by 2014, uh, the militia-like nature of that so, but, but, I mean, by 2022, the militia-like nature of these forces was disappearing, and that process really accelerated after the invasion happened because they all had to operate under leadership of, uh, you know, the, sort of the, the chain of command. And you know, if you're fighting a fall like Russia, you, know, you you better follow an overall strategy and follow orders. I mean, so they they all now operate under the authority of either the Ministry of Defense or the General Intelligence Service uh, of uh, the Ministry of Defense or the National Guard. And when it comes to oligarchs, you know, one of the things that Zelensky had done was to defang a lot of them, including you know, people like uh, Kolomoisky, who had helped to bring him to power and who was one of the original founders of these militias. So the power of the, of the oligarchs I'm not going to say vanished, but it's greatly diminished in Ukraine now compared to what it was before the war, or especially in, a, in the early days after 2014. Do you think this would mean that when the war ends, particularly if the war ends with a settlement that is short of getting every last bit of the 1991 borders back, that there won't be dangers around fragmentation of these militia or rebellions against the state by these militia? I don't think so. I mean, these militias are pretty small now compared to the overall size of the Ukrainian armed forces. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more than a million men and women under arms. And I don't think the society will tolerate that. The head of the armed forces, General Zaluzhny, is extremely popular in Ukraine. Fragmentation of security forces is seen as suicidal for pretty much everyone. So it's hard to sort of it's it's hard to foretell what sort of political things will be happening, you know, in the long run. But these militias challenging the 
the armed forces would be very, very difficult and would not be very successful for them. Also because, you know, they all they all fighting together. They you know, they, they all have <clears throat> been washed in blood in these two years of war. So they're not really militias anymore. Yeah. They, they're all now regiments and and and, uh, and battalions in the in the armed forces of the National Guard. You mentioned uh, General Zaluzhny there, uh, and you, you say in the book that whenever you went around, you were very struck of the personality cult around him, and in comparison that Zelensky didn't seem particularly popular with the uh, with the general populace and with the, um, the, with the troops. Do you anticipate that uh, Zelensky could have the same kind of reward after the war that Churchill had when the, uh, the war ended in, in Britain and will be kicked out and could potentially be replaced by Zeluzhny or another person you interviewed, um, uh, Budanov? Let, let, let's do it by one one. I think that nobody in Ukraine is fighting for Zelensky. Zelensky is the face of Ukraine abroad, because people have to sort of personify the resistance, and he did a great job campaigning for Ukraine. But people are fighting for Ukrainian independence, for the right to replace Zelensky, if need be, in an election that will happen after the war. Uh, so there is absolutely no personality cult of him in the society. And people also remember the mistakes that he made before the war. But people do recognize that he did not flee, he displayed courage by staying in Kiev when it seemed like it was falling and when everybody was, all the foreign partners were urging him to leave. And he did a good job in securing international support for Ukraine, uh, in part by using his skills to speak over the heads of politicians to the electorate in, in the US and in the UK and other countries. And once the war is over and there is a political campaign, you know, people will be discussing the merits of whether he should stay or should go. Uh, if you look at the history of Ukraine after the war, uh, sorry, if you look at the history of Ukraine after uh, independence in 1991, only one president has been re-elected. Mm. Everyone else lost his bid for re-election. You know, Ukraine has had, uh, you know, five, six presidents. Let me just count. You, know, you had Kravchuk at the beginning. You had Kuchma, who was elected twice. Then you had <clears throat> Yushchenko, Yanukovych, and Zelensky, who's now the sixth president. In 30 years. Well, we read now that Ukraine is being persuaded, perhaps by by its allies, to move into a more defensive posture. I read in your book about the devastation of the frontline cities and how Hesson is emptying. It sort of struck me that a, a new border was defining itself along the Dnipro River. If the war ended now, Ukraine would be 20% smaller in landmass, but it would be a candidate for EU membership, a close NATO ally, and a necessary military power for Europe. When you speak to Ukrainian officials off the record, is there any acceptance that this could be the basis of a strategic victory, even with loss of territory? I think, no. I think the fear in Ukraine, not just among officials, but in the population at large, is that once Russia swallows this bit of Ukraine, it only whet its appetite for the next one. You know, salami tactics. They, they got one bit in 2014, they will get another bit now, and then what you really hear from people is, I would rather have this war last another year or two years than have my children and grandchildren having to fight again. Do they believe or do they understand that that may not be an option if Donald Trump is re-elected as president in January 2025? <sighs> yes. You know, when, when the war started, Ukraine didn't have much support either. 
U.S. embassy had closed, heavy weapons were refused, and everyone assumed that the Russians will take over. So, in a way, it's sort of an academic question, right? Because if President Trump is elected, or even if he doesn't, he's not elected. As far as Russia is concerned, as far as Vladimir Putin is concerned, they want all of Ukraine. Why would they stop? You know, Putin said a few weeks ago that Odessa is a Russian city. Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president and the head of Putin's party, said that Kiev is a Russian city that should be liberated. <clears throat> so it, it's really hard to see an incentive for Russia to settle at the current borders. And by default, uh, any any solution that is not permanent is just a pause uh, for the next round of fighting when it's more convenient for Russia. And uh, what does the immediate future hold for you now? Will you be staying in Ukraine, going in and out of Ukraine, or moving on to a border post? Well, I'm still going back. I'm, I'm not, I, mean, I spent pretty much the entire year of 2022 in Ukraine. I went to Ukraine less frequently in 2023, but still quite often. Uh, but I do also cover other things, and I was trying to step back this year, this past year, a little bit to look at the broader ramifications of this war. Uh, I went to Taiwan to look at how, and, 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 and speak to Chinese officials as well, to see how China uh, thinking is influenced by the Russian setbacks in Ukraine. Uh, I obviously got involved in the coverage of the war in Gaza, and looking at how sort of a global alliance is forming now between Russia, China, Iran, uh, North Korea, uh, and the military one between Russia, Iran, and North Korea, especially. Because I think the conflict in Ukraine is now part of a global network of tensions in which these authoritarian nations are increasingly challenging the U.S. and allies and, and Western democracies, trying to rewrite the rules of the game. To finish, as usual, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guests to choose two, one broadly in the same field and one personal choice. So, Yaroslav, what have you chosen? Yeah, there are two books. Uh, the both of them are not very new. Uh, one of them is Timothy Snyder's Sketches from Secret War, uh, which is really a book about Polish spies and Polish intelligence working in Ukraine in the 1930s, 1920s, and later. Uh, this sort of fascinating page in the history of the two countries. And another book that uh, I've been reading this summer and really struck me was Curzio Malaparte's Caput. Curzio Malaparte was an Italian writer and then a war correspondent. And during World War II, the Italian journalists could travel in Europe, kind of embedded with the Nazis without being part of the Nazis. And uh, so, and obviously he was very anti-Nazi afterwards. And so he wrote this, it's not really a, a, a piece of journalism, it's a, it's a book of fiction, but about real events that you know, really illuminates the thinking on the German side, the, the, all the atrocities the Germans were committing, but as seen from within. And it, it's a very unique look at World War II because usually we just see it from the side of the allies, side of the parties, and side of the victims. You know, none of, none of writers we read, very few of them, you know, could go and dine with the German governor of Poland. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, today I've been talking to Yaroslav Trofimov about Our Enemies Will Vanish, published today by Penguin. Yaroslav, thanks again for coming on. Excellent. Thank you so much. Great to be on the show.